0: you pray with me lord this morning we gather on this christmas eve day to remember and to celebrate your coming into the world and we thank you lord that you chose to move through ordinary people in ordinary ways to bring about your salvation which would change the lives for all who would come and believe and lord this morning we pray that you would ignite in our hearts again desire and a passion for your name uh, that you would reawaken in us, in whom this story has perhaps become familiar, a uh, desire and a wonder to follow you and to love you and to remember afresh the baby born in the stable. Uh, we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you again, Velma. Just a little recap of where we're at in this story. If you're just jumping in and maybe this is your first Sunday here, welcome again. We're so glad you're here. You're joining us online. Welcome again. Last week in Chapter 3 of Ruth, Ruth asks Boaz to marry her and that will redeem or rescue her family and he agrees. And despite all of their potential past sins, That they could act in or could perpetuate they decide to walk in holiness and we talked last week about in the same way God uh, calls us out of the sins of our own pasts and we too can choose to walk in holiness despite what has happened uh, in our own lives or even in our parents lives or in past generations we don't need to uh, live that out we can choose to follow God And to walk uh, for him and with him and that brings us to the last chapter of Ruth which sets us up for Christmas in some really neat ways the the passage is divided into kind of three chunks there's this negotiation that happens at the gate and then we get uh, the betrothal and the birth and the blessing of Ruth and Naomi uh, and Boaz and that whole family and then you get a little epilogue of what's to come but first we're at the gate with Boaz and this is really the redemption of Ruth Uh, this is Boaz heading out to the town to the town gate to get some some business matters settled the gate is something like uh, the town square it's where you would gather for commerce or to exchange news or to conduct legal proceedings whatever you sort of is going on you go out to the gate to do that and we get the sense that the Redeemer this potential other person who could marry into the family and could redeem Naomi and Ruth out of poverty and into uh, a future, into a provision again, uh, sort of becoming full Israelites again. Right now, they're sort of without. Uh, There's a, a, a method in Israel. We talked about this last week. A redeemer of the family can come and help secure the land again For those who have become widowed or who've become orphaned, it's to help ensure that no one's sort of left in poverty or left in destitution. And Ruth has asked if Boaz will do this, and that includes marrying her. But Boaz says, hang on, there's another guy who's actually closer in line who could do this for you. I need to make sure uh, he doesn't want to do that before I just marry you. So here's Boaz comes to, to get this settled. And look, at, look again with me at verse 1. And behold, the Redeemer, the would-be Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. And Boaz says, turn aside, friend. Uh, sit down right here. This is another great example in Ruth of how God is providentially at work, even though God's not mentioned very often. Just so happens, the guy that Boaz needs just so happens to swing by. And Boaz calls him over. And we get this sense there's a kind of an abrupt ability by Boaz to just sort of call these people together. He calls the Redeemer over. He calls the elders together. There's the sense that Boaz is kind of a guy to be reckoned with. The man is left unnamed. We don't hear who this would-be Redeemer is. I mean, Boaz likely knows his name. But it could be that the narrator intentionally leaves the name out for a couple of reasons. It could be that because he refuses to preserve the name of Naomi's family, his own name doesn't get recorded in the record sort of as a bit of ironic justice. Uh, Or it could be that by not choosing to redeem Naomi's family, uh, you know, there's a bit of an embarrassment. He doesn't really step up to the task, and so the writer decides, well, we'll just leave his name out, not to draw any more attention to him. We're not exactly sure, but whatever happens, we don't know exactly who this guy is, but he uh, has the right to, to be the redeemer for this family. So Boaz calls him over, and calls the elders over, calls 10 elders who, uh, with 10 elders you have sort of official witness for legal proceedings to kind of legitimize what goes on. So he set all that up, quite a commanding presence Boaz has, a lot of authority. Uh, and pretty soon, by the end of the exchange, it seems like the whole there's kind of a whole crowd that's gathered, kind of watch what's going on. Uh, so people get a sense, something's going down, right? This guy's called this guy, he's called 10 elders. Uh, what's going on? So everyone sort of gathered together. And this begins Boaz's strategy. And his whole idea here is to invite this unnamed redeemer, this unnamed relative, invite him to become the redeemer and potentially buy the land or buy into uh, sort of the, the material provisions that are involved in redeeming Ruth and Naomi. And so Boaz announces that Naomi is selling land and invites this unnamed guy to to kind of come in and act that way now this This seems kind of weird because so far in the story It seems like Naomi is destitute and yet here Boaz is saying she's selling land and it's kind of been interpreted different ways We don't know exactly How that how that all works. It seems like they don't have a lot because Ruth had to go glean, right? Uh, Yet it's very possible that Naomi would, would own the land. So, so some modern interpreters who assume that women couldn't do anything in the past, this sort of bumps up against that because it's, women could hold land and property in the ancient Near East in Israel's time here. It could be that Naomi is, is actually saying she's willing to now buy back the land that Elimelech probably uh, had sold off before they moved to Moab. And since Naomi has no money to really do this, uh, the Redeemer, whatever the case, the Redeemer has to step in to make this happen. Doesn't spell out exactly the status of the land, but uh, it's kind of a reminder. When you're reading the Bible, there's moments like this that we don't we don't understand all of the details exactly of what's going on, and that's okay. It's this is an ancient text, not written in English. Uh, the Ruth story is well over two thousand years old, um, and so we need to remember when you're reading scripture to. Uh, As we say mind the gap if you've ever had to travel on a subway or train underground and you kind of go up to the platform and then uh, There's a big sort of a a gap where you're not supposed to stand and the train comes down the tunnel And then the doors open and you step in and they say mind the gap watch out Uh, There's space there uh, that's unfamiliar territory in the same way when we read the Bible Uh, We need to mind the gap. There's sometimes cultural differences that we don't understand or historical context we don't understand. And if we make assumptions about that, uh, it can be a little bit dangerous in terms of interpretation. So we mind the gap. It's a very different culture. Um, Like I said, some commentators are just kind of baffled that a woman would even inherit the husband's land. But we have biblical texts. We also have extra uh, Jewish texts, extra biblical texts that talk about this. So it's not that big of a deal to those that might think it is. Anyway, you might ask, well, why are we talking about land? Ruth asked Boaz to redeem her. Like, who cares about the land, right? Uh, But this is part of Boaz's plan. Boaz is willing, he's eager to redeem the land uh, in case this other guy doesn't want to. And this allows this other relative to sort of save face because he knows, well, someone's gonna fulfill the duty. Unfortunately, what happens is the kinsman redeemer very quickly says, well, I will redeem. I will do it. Look at verse, where is it, verse 4. He just says, yeah, I'll fulfill the duties. This is part of, this is part of the culture. And this is the role. This is the, what I'm supposed to do. He just goes, yeah, I'll redeem it. Off we go. No hesitation. This is intentional on Boaz's part. So he set the guy up to do it, and then Boaz introduces introduces the complication. And that's Ruth, that Coming to own this property will mean not that he owns Ruth, but that he'll have to sort of deal with these widows in some way. And uh, what's he going to do with that? Now, this is the first time Boaz mentions to the Redeemer Ruth's status. Look again at verse 5. We've talked about this, I think, every Sunday we've looked at Ruth. Boaz says, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire, not in a property sense, but you acquire the need to have to sort of deal with, Ruth, the Moabite. So Boaz intentionally calls up Ruth's sort of sordid family history here, uh, that problematic status, and that's probably intentional, uh, that despite Ruth's commitment to Israel and Ruth's commitment to Naomi, uh, others still see Ruth as a foreigner. Ruth has said, your God is my God, your people be my people. Well, that's great, Ruth. Ruth. Uh, But that doesn't mean the people have accepted you yet, right? She's still a Moabite. Now, there's a debate about what exactly is going on here, because, again, redemption of the land doesn't mean you have to marry uh, the widow. Uh, So some scholars think Boaz is implying the kinsman should marry Ruth. Like, oh, by the way, well, if if you're good to get the land, oh, by the way, there's this widow... Uh, that's kind of associated with this, and it probably means you should marry her. If you're so keen to exercise your kinsman redeemer stuff, you should probably marry this girl. Oh, and by the way, she's a Moabite. Uh, So there you are, right? Or, and and likely the guy won't want to, and that's good for Boaz, because Boaz kind of wants him to decline all of this. It could be that Boaz is actually telling the guy, I'll marry Ruth, And that means, well, buddy, if you buy the land, just so you know, I'm going to marry Ruth. And what that means is later on, we'll have kids. And when the year of Jubilee happens, the land you buy will revert back to our family. So Israel has this cool thing where every 50 years on the year of Jubilee, if there's been sale of land or exchanging of certain things, it kind of reverts back to the original owner. And this is to kind of keep the property and uh, it it stops uh, slavery from sort of perpetuating forever. It makes kind of limited time frames on stuff. It's really neat compared to other cultures. But basically, if this guy buys the land and thinks, oh, this is an investment, like I've got this, I'm expanding my estate. Well, buddy, within 50 years, that just reverts back to Boaz. So Boaz is saying, your investment's not gonna really work out very well for you because eventually it's gonna be mine or at least our kids, because I'm marrying Ruth. It could be that he's saying that. Either way, the guy decides to relinquish his role, right? Look at verse six. The Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance, right? Because he's saying, I, that's not gonna work out well for me in the long term. So you take the right of redemption, I can't do it. And Boaz sort of behind the scenes is going, yes, that was what I was hoping for. So he relinquishes his role. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like what Orpah did in chapter one, where Orpah says, yes, I'll come with you, Naomi. I'll do the right thing and then declines. It's The same kind of thing here where he says, yeah, I'll do the right thing. I'll be the redeemer and then finds out more information is like, yeah, maybe not. I'm okay, thanks. Anyway, he gives it over to Boaz, says you take the right of redemption. He transfers that over to Boaz, that's great. And then here's a good example of the mind, the gap that happens the narrator himself stops the story to explain to the audience at the time when this was written what happens next this is when they exchange the the sandal thing right how much and, and the narrator at this point saying you guys don't know what the sandal thing's about i'm going to have to explain that to you uh, how much more is that helpful for us right but so often in the bible we don't get those moments where the narrator stops to sort of explain why they do this or why they do that um, and that's part of the work of biblical studies which is really fun Anyway, he explains the uh, the validation of the transaction. You take off your sandal, you hand it to the other guy. I don't know how that validates a thing, other than being slightly gross. But anyway, uh, that's what you, I guess the guy walks around with one sandal to show he signed his name. To, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. This shows you the gap, right? Like it just doesn't compute for us. Um, but think about it this way: in a pre uh, Writing society, there'd be some stuff written, but it's primarily an oral society. Um, You you tend to use gestures and symbolism to enact a lot more of sort of day-to-day life than we do. So we sign our names to things and have like a legal written document. To them, the handing off of the sandal is that. It's just as like powerful and performative as that sort of thing. Um, we tend to think of sort of symbols or actions like that as secondary to write something written in stone, we say, right? Um, but to them, that's just as just as meaningful or just as powerful. Both sort of validate and uh, record the agreement, kind of like the same as sort of a modern legal document. So then they do the sandal thing, great. And now this other guy's out of the picture. So Boaz has dealt with uh, the the legal hang-up that stops him from redeeming and marrying Ruth. So Boaz then uh, continues his plan. This is verse 9. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, because now there's a whole crowd here wondering what's going on, you are all witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. And again, we don't quite... We don't know how all the legal proceeding stuff works, but b- he's, he's making sure he's going through the right channels to secure this redemption properly. And then in verse 10, he announces that he'll take Ruth as his wife. And some one reader has said this is probably the least attractive marriage proposal in like all written literature. Right? It's, it's not exactly romantic. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have brought to be my wife. I will perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers. mostly about the dead guy than it is about Ruth. Um, But the point is, Boaz's declaration is actually the happy ending to the tragedy of this story that we were introduced to in chapter 1, that Ruth has lost her husband. They have no children, and that means they have no prospects for the future, and there's no perpetuating of the family line. And so finally, someone has stepped in to do it. So it may not seem deeply romantic, but the guy's actually being deeply responsible to do the right thing by this family. Uh, Boaz will perpetuate the name. And notice how Boaz also is fitting his own goals of marrying Ruth into the larger goals of the community. Isn't that interesting? Like He's not just looking after for himself. He's saying, what matters here for us here in Bethlehem and for perpetuating the name in our community? And, making sure as a community we're healthy. I don't want my goals to come up against what's healthy for the community. Those two need to work together well. And I think about us in a church sometimes, right? And how our own individual sort of goals or desires need to work together for the sake of the community, for the sake of what God wants to do. I just think it's interesting. And so we then get uh, a radical move by Boaz because once again, he's saying I'm gonna marry her And he's brought up that she's a Moabite. And if you want to, you can go back to Deuteronomy 23. And in Deuteronomy 23, you get words like this. No Ammonite or Moabite shall be admitted into the congregation of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation. They don't belong here. Now, Boaz, he could have lied, right? He could have tried to hide... Ruth's identity. He could have just left that detail out, but this is actually, I think it's actually part of his sort of brilliant plan here. He doesn't hide it. Rather, he knows that by, by redeeming her, by choosing to marry her anyway, it will actually change Ruth's status. That by embracing and accepting Ruth, the foreigner, it will actually fundamentally change her standing legally in the community. And so his sort of roundabout negotiations with this land, with this other guy, and all these sort of grand public declarations that he does here, all that's really intentional. So the people know she's a Moabite. The people have heard that Boaz is willing to take her. And this is what makes verse 11 to 12 really, really interesting. Because look what they say. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into the house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. Their unanimous consent here to this wedding arrangement is like a it like formally ratifies the legitimacy of Boaz and Ruth choosing to get married. And so the whole assembly now is welcoming her and choosing to support her and that support that welcome bypasses the exclusion of the Moabites from Israel's community because they're essentially saying, Ruth, now you're no longer Moabite. Now you're fully Israelite. And they've chosen to sort of adopt her. And it's, it's changed her past. She's been welcomed in. And it's kind of like the whole town is just like cheering for them, right? And this, this line, may the Lord make the woman coming into your house like Rachel... And Leah and so they're warmly welcoming her in her in and I, I mentioned already right Ruth has made a commitment to Naomi uh, To Yahweh to Israel, but now the community is choosing to accept her It's one thing for her to say I want to do this But it's another thing for the community to say she's welcomed and with this blessing now Naomi is fully integrated into the community and guess what from this point on she's no longer identified as a Moabite. And so that kind of that final blemish on her record is kind of washed off. That part's gone. In some sense, she's become a new person. She's given a new identity, or we might say she's become a new creation. Something fundamental has shifted, and she's no longer Moabite. But there's more they specifically link her to Rachel and Leah those are ancient ancient matriarchs for Israel right Ruth who had called herself a foreigner who was a foreigner has now been given equal place among the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel she's given not just a new identity she's been given a new family she's been given a new people but there's even more Because in them blessing Ruth and Boaz and invoking the idea of perpetuating the name of the family line, that means at long last Ruth will have children of her own, and that means the mourning and the grieving that she was experiencing with Naomi in chapter one has finally turned to hope and joy. So not only has she been given a new identity, she's been given a new family, a new community, but now finally... Her mourning has turned to dancing her sorrows turned to joy Finally the grief that she had experienced has been undone, but there's even more so look at verse 12 They say may your house be like the house of Perez Perez is sort of a that's a deep cut from Israel's history Perez uh, Was also the offspring of an inappropriate Union and so it's sort of invoking this idea that uh, this is also strange Ruth and Boaz is also a strange union, also suspicious, but we're also going to now welcome and affirm them into our community. The other thing that's interesting is Perez means to break or to breach. He's named that because he was a twin, and when their mom was giving birth, he was trying to push past his brother to get out quicker. Not fun for the mom. Uh, Named breach for how you were delivered. Oh, poor woman. But he was pushing his way out of the womb, And he's invoked here because could it be that through the marriage of Ruth and Boaz, there's finally come a breach in the wall between Israel and Moab? That in the same way he breached (laughs) the poor woman, in some ways, they're invoking his name because something's now been broken and torn down. And it's good. And so Boaz marries Ruth, right? She's finally redeemed. And the blessing of future children kind of concludes the, the moment at the city gate. And the stranger who was a Moabite, poor and widowed, has now been heartily welcomed into the community. And the hoped-for child has, will come that will restore the broken genealogy. Uh, all, of that, all that we we're introduced to in chapter 1 now is finally kind of brought full circle here in chapter 4. In verse, verse 13, we have the Lord let her conceive. This is a typical biblical language. Uh, often connects God's action and agency to pregnancy. It's more than just biology that like God's at work in those moments. And then we get the final act, right? Verses 13 to uh, 17, we have the celebration of their marriage and new birth. And it's interesting, the focus shifts back to Naomi. It's kind of like a bookend, right? We opened with Naomi. We have had all these moments, and now we go back to Naomi, who will finally be sustained in her old age. And how does it end? Here, she started with her grieving the loss of her sons, her husband. It ends with a never, never believed it would happen baby sitting on her lap. Uh, it's just, it's beautiful. It's just beautiful, uh, and the way it's written, it's just brilliant. Uh, and it ends with. Uh, the, the women uh, finally uh, finding their home and their future, Ruth and Naomi uh, together. Shifts back like I said to Naomi and it ends with the words of the women of the community uh, sort of surrounding her. They get the last word in the book uh, that Naomi's lifeline and legacy are restored and it kind of lingers on her for a moment. Remember Naomi wanted to change her name to Bitterness right in chapter one. And now, at long last, she's back to, back to joy. That uh, She hasn't been left behind by God. And here's this great line that the, that the story ends with. Look at verse 14. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. God has not withheld a Redeemer for you. Some of the implications for us, just as I kind of wrap things up, three things I just want to bring to mind. Again, the first thing that we kind of have hammered home all throughout this series, because it it just shows up every time, is that God is at work, even in very ordinary ways in our lives. He's at work in an old widow who loses her kids and a young woman who chooses to leave home, at work in a man who tries to be responsible and, and do his work well, and each was doing their part And then God did his part and God takes regular ordinary folk like Ruth and Boaz and Naomi and you and me and regular people like Mary and Joseph and stables and donkeys and brings about his glory and invites us to see his goodness and his presence and his life at work, uh, bringing about his salvation. The second thing is, and this is probably worth noting, it's sort of a side note, but God brings men and women together in harmony. And what we see here is is Ruth um, acting with, with grace and resourcefulness and loyalty, and Boaz acting with strength and wisdom as well, but they're working together. They're not working against each other. And that's God's heart for people too is that as men and women we come together to reflect the image of god it's not sort of one against the other and in all of these things we get uh we get the world of the men in chapter four in some ways at the gate and then we also get the world of the women in chapter four and it ends with the women's voices as well they're not sort of relegated to the sidelines in the story and we hear them with this last refrain which is so good the lord has not withheld a redeemer for you and that final moment of the story peeks ahead uh, to the child to come, right? That through Boaz and Ruth's family will come King David. And from King David's line will also come a redeemer to restore humanity. Emmanuel, God with us. Ruth needed a redeemer, right? And through Boaz and and the welcoming, loving community at Bethlehem. She's given a new identity, and she's given a new family. She's given a new beginning, and and new joy, and hope. And on this Christmas Eve, here in Ruth, we also see something of the gospel story unfold. There's going to come another time where Bethlehem would welcome another stranger. This time, not a woman widowed, but a baby boy... Born in a stable to ordinary parents, and this time the people would not welcome him, but the people would eventually reject him. Yet he had come not in need of redeeming, like Ruth needed, he had come to bring redemption to all. We needed a redeemer, someone who could come into the sin. And brokenness and destitution in our lives. And God was faithful to us. He did not withhold a redeemer. He was faithful. Not only did he send just someone. But he chose to come himself. To take on flesh. And to dwell among us. And John says, in him we beheld God's glory. Full of grace and truth. And he came and went to the cross For you and for your salvation, so that by his death your sins could be washed away and forgiven, the record wiped clean, a little bit like Ruth's old past being wiped clean. So that we, when we come to him and repent of our sins, we, like Ruth, can be given a new identity, given a new beginning, given a new family given the joy and the hope where once there was sin and despair. And that is the glad tidings of great joy that we celebrate this Christmas. Would you stand and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came to be our Redeemer. Father, that you would not withhold a Redeemer from us, even when things look bleak and broken in our lives, Jesus, you are faithful to come, to live, to die, to be raised again to new life, so that we could learn to love and to follow you, to repent of our sins, and be welcomed into new family, into new forgiveness and salvation life. We thank you that in small scale, you did that for Ruth and for Naomi. That Boaz, in some ways, models for us the faithfulness and loyalty that you show us. Lord, I thank you that, that you over, overturn our sin in such a way that you took Ruth, who came from a terrible background, and wove her into the story of your own lineage. That you looked at her and didn't exclude her because of what she'd done in her past. And Jesus, you don't look at us and exclude us either from your redemption. There is nothing too great that we've done in our past that you can't forgive. Jesus, we are in awe of that. And we ask that you would help us to walk in that. uh, To embrace the forgiveness and the freedom that you offer us. Lord, to also then extend that same forgiveness and love to those around us. Uh, even when we are disappointed in others, hurt by others. Uh, Lord, to choose to love, to forgive, uh, to model what you have shown us to do as we seek to live for you. Lord, we thank you that you came because no one else could come in our place to deal with our sin and with the evil in our world. And Jesus, we celebrate you this Christmas. We thank you that you came. Uh, Lord, we pray that where we feel bitter and broken and grieving like Ruth and Naomi, you would turn that into joy and life and grace and hope. Uh, Lord, may this story uh, illustrate for us how your loyal love pushes through the darkness in our lives and in our world to bring about your purposes for your glory, and you invite us to be part of it. Lord, we love you. We say today we thank you. Uh, Jesus, help us to live for you and help us to be your faithful witnesses in this world uh, that is still in such a need of knowing it needs a Redeemer. Uh, Lord, may you, through us, uh, continue to point to yourself, Jesus. May our lives and our words point to you. Uh, We pray, Lord, for those that are in need today, those that Uh, Need an experience of your healing or your grace your forgiveness your comfort Lord We thank you that you are still at work in those ways in our world today We ask Lord that you would help us to be uh, so aware of those around us who are in need uh, That are hurting both in our own church family uh, In our own natural families, but also Lord in our community at large help us to love and extend grace and blessing To those around us uh, just as we see modeled here in ruth four lord we we lift up our our city our country our province we ask for your redemption and your grace to come would you do a work in the hearts of our leaders may this christmas season lord may they encounter you we pray may hearts be changed and salvation come in their households Uh, lord we pray as we gather with different ones this Christmas, that you would be so present there with us around the table. And Jesus, for some of us, we're so aware of those who are not present at the table this year. Um, So, Lord, would you come alongside and bring uh, hope in life where there's grief and uh, real real trouble and sorrow in our hearts. Uh, Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for all you've done for us. Uh, We ask these things in your name. Amen.